when you actually look, as Cliff said, at what Stam of Kashmir is, is doing, you look at the kind of people it's supporting and you see that actually it's there to portray actual terrorists as martyrs. You start to realize that the academics are simply there to do exactly the same thing, just put a sort of semi-quasi-intellectual spin on the defense of terrorists. Welcome to That's So Hindu, the podcast brought to you by the Hindu American Foundation. I'm Matt McDermott. In this episode, Samir Kalra speaks with Sam Westrup and Clifford Smith of the Middle East Forum on the influence of Islamist ideology on the Kashmir conflict and how it spread around the world. joined today by Cliff Smith and Sam Westrup from the Middle East Forum, a Philadelphia-based think tank. Cliff is the Washington Project Director at the Forum and its liaison to decision makers and opinion leaders in Washington, D.C. An experienced political operative, he is a veteran of numerous campaigns and has held several positions in Congress, most recently Communications Director for U.S. Rep. Gary Palmer. His writings have been published in several media outlets. And we're joined by Sam Westrup as well. Sam is the Islamist Watch Director at the Middle East Forum. He was previously Research Director at Americans for Peace and Tolerance and ran Stand for Peace, a London-based counter-extremism organization monitoring Islamists throughout the UK. Mr. Westrup is a senior fellow with the Gatestone Institute. His writings have appeared in several publications and he has appeared on dozens of television and radio stations. So I'm really pleased to have them both with me here today to talk about Jamaat the Islami and more broadly, the Islamist influence campaign in the U.S. Welcome, Cliff and Sam. Hi, thank you for having us. Great. So before we kind of delve a little bit deeper into Jamaat in particular and uh, some of their affiliates and activities, I was hoping maybe we can set the stage a little bit and maybe helpful for our listeners to just get a better understanding of what exactly we mean when we talk about Islamism as an ideology and what that represents. So perhaps, Sam, you can start by giving us a basic definition of Islamism to set the context. Yes, sure. So one of the things the Middle East Forum is very clear about is that we regard Islam and Islamism as two very different things. Um, Islamism, no doubt, is born out of Islam. There's no question about that. But it is a distinct political ideology uh, developed in the 19th and early 20th century. Uh, that seeks to apply Islam as a political ideology, as a political system uh, to rule societies, not just in the Muslim world, but ultimately to expand and impose their will all over the world. Islamism is a theocratic movement uh, that seeks to subjugate all under an authoritarian religious ideal. Um, The most familiar Islamist groups, I think, to most people are are groups like Jamaat Islami or the Muslim Brotherhood. But there are dozens, if not hundreds, of these Islamist groups, some entirely politically focused, others more religious, uh, operating all around the world, delineated by ethnicity, culture, ideology, schools of jurisprudence, degrees of belief, and things like mysticisms and so on. It's a very diverse, just as Islam is extremely diverse, so too is Islamism. Uh, and uh, the Middle East Forum, particularly the Islamist Watch Project that I run, works to understand all these different arms of Islamism and how they interact with each other. Sometimes they're quite hostile to each other, they're not all getting along, and how they interact with the rest of the Muslim world as well. well that's very helpful, and I think um, it's, it's great that you pointed out the distinction between Islamism and Islam, because I believe that 
beyond just non-Muslim, Muslims themselves are some of the primary targets um, of Islamist groups and organizations. Yes, that's that that's right. And in fact, the, the, yes, the primary target of hundreds of thousands of Muslims have been murdered by Islamists over the the past century. And uh, at the rate it's going, it'll be hundreds of thousands of more uh, in the next few decades as, as 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 well. There is nothing an Islamist hates more than a Muslim who does not ad- adopt his extremist ideology. These are traitors to the cause. These are blasphemers um, who have sold out to the West or have sold out to another competing ideology. Uh, That is why we work so closely with moderate and reformist Muslim groups to fight Islamism, to identify Islamist influence and to counteract it. And, you know, in fact, our tagline is, if radical Islam is the problem, then moderate Islam is the solution. Absolutely. And I think one of the major symbols of Islamism in South Asia, as you alluded to, is Jamaat-e-Islami. And uh, Jamaat-e-Islami, from my understanding, was to some degree inspired by the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, But maybe if you can just talk a little bit about Jamaat-e-Islami's origins uh, and some of their general activities, both throughout South Asia, and then we can transition to here in the U.S. Jamaat-e-Islami and the Muslim Brotherhood came about pretty much the same time. jamaat islami was founded a few decades later in, in, 19, in the 1940s, whereas the Muslim Brotherhood was founded in the 1920s. But the ideas that underpin jamaat islami were written by its founding ideologue, Abu Al-Amodudi, uh, 10, 20 years before that, around the time the Muslim Brotherhood was formed. And so, in fact, both movements have learned from the other. Both have used the writings of the other to develop their own ideas. They are separate movements, but they share a huge amount in common. Uh, in fact, one of the main um, think tanks for jamaat islami in the West is a group in Britain called the Islamic Foundation up in Northern England. And they have two dining rooms in this uh, foundation, two dining rooms, eating halls for the students. One is called the Abdul Allah Mordudi room, the founder of jamaat islami The other is called the Hassan al-Banna room, the, the founder of the Muslim Brotherhood. So many of these Islamists regard the movements as somewhat interchangeable, although they do disagree on some small things. Um, We see that in the way they operate in the West. They work together, they partner together, including here in America, but they retain their own distinct networks of funders and supporters and activities and groups. So in terms of Jamaat-e-Islami, you know, I think some people may know about them in terms of their role during the independence movement uh, in Bangladesh in 1971 and some of their violent activities there. Uh, Can you just talk about um, not just their role there, but what they have um, represented in South Asia more broadly? Because I know that they are active in India, particularly Indian state of Jammu and Kashmir. They're active in Pakistan, um, and of course, Bangladesh, as mentioned. Uh, but maybe you can just kind of uh, elaborate a little bit on some of their activities uh, in South Asia itself. Yes, Jamati Islami is a very malleable group. Wherever it goes in the world, it will adapt to take the approach that best serves their interest. So here in the United States, they operate lawfully using charities and community groups and so on. In Bangladesh, they have a long history of violence, as in Kashmir. Uh, In Pakistan, they're a a prominent political party that uh, works closely with the government. They adapt to however the the most efficacious, the most efficient way they can spread their ideology. Uh, They will adapt to those those tactics, to those methods. 
I think Jamaat Islami really, as you pointed out, came to the fore, at least in, in the minds of those in South Asia, in 1971 with the Bangladeshi Liberation War. This was Bangladesh's uh, attempt, or at least activists within Bangladesh, their attempt to free themselves from the grip of Pakistan. Bangladesh at that time was East Pakistan, of course. And the Pakistani army did not take kindly to this attempt for independence. And the army used Jamati Islami and other Islamist groups, they used them as paramilitary killing squads to, in an attempt to, to kill those behind this push for self-determination, this push for freedom, for independence. So intellectuals, students, women, children were murdered tens of thousands of them, possibly hundreds of thousands of them. An American diplomat at the time said it's the worst thing since the Holocaust that he was seeing unfold in front of him. Uh, this was a deeply shocking massacre that even today the world outside of South Asia knows far too little about. Jamati Islami was key to this, the, 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 these, these murders, to this, this, these acts of genocide. Um, and in fact, many of those responsible for these war crimes during 1971, these Jamaati Islami members uh, fled to the West, where they became leaders in Jamaati Islami groups there. And I'm sure we can get to that in a, in a bit. I think the point I wanted to make is that Bangladesh Jamaati Islami is violent. It started off violent. It was originally East Pakistan Jamaati Islami. It transformed to Bangladesh Jamaati Islami when they realized the, the Liberation War was lost, essentially, and that the Bangladeshi independence movement has won. But then they became a violent group in Bangladesh too. And in fact, today, their student group Islami Shatra Shabir is considered, I think, by, by Jains, a prominent think tank on terrorism, the third most violent non-state actor in the world. Um, so this is a, violent, a fundamentally, an, an inherently violent movement. Let's not forget that. Then let's not be deceived when we see them operating in the upper echelons of government in Pakistan or running lobby days and charitable drives here in, in New York, in Boston and elsewhere. Uh, this is a dangerous movement, and as I said, extremely malleable. Yeah, I think there was actually a great book on um, the 1971, um, what many term as a genocide, uh, Archer Blood's book, The Blood Telegram, um, that really, he was a diplomat based in Dhaka, um, the consulate there, and he really detailed a lot of um, the violence being perpetrated by Jamaat in conjunction with the Pakistani military. And I think one of the things that really stood out was that was actually one of the first times where rape and rape camps were used as a weapon of war in the modern, um, you know, in modern times. Uh, and Jamaat was at the forefront of that. Um, amongst the primary targets, of course, beyond the intellectuals um, and the freedom fighters were Hindus themselves um, targeted in particular. And I think there was also a commission report from Pakistan, the Hamdur Commission, that looked at the role and specifically targeting um, Hindus and how uh, Pakistani military officers in conjunction with Jamaat gave orders to go after Hindus and specifically commit war crimes. Right. And, and I do recommend uh, listeners Google the, the, the blood telegram and read what it says. It's, it's harrowing, harrowing stuff. And, and just to point out that even today, Jamaati Islami in Bangladesh is working to destroy, to damage, to harm both violently, physically, and, and politically, the Hindu remaining Hindu community in Bangladesh. They see the destruction of Bangladeshi Hindus as vital to the Islamization of Bangladesh. And this would be consistent with what they've done in other countries, too, it's worth mentioning. I mean, it, while it didn't get nearly as much press, they were very involved in trying to Islamize Pakistan from its very inception, from the day Pakistan started to exist. Um, and on top of that, uh, it's worth mentioning one other thing, 
if you read um, Shadow War um, by Arif Jamal, who's actually a Pakistani, I believe he's an, uh, ethnically, I believe he's an American citizen now, but uh, he's, an, you know, I believe to be an honest scholar, his book on Kashmir makes it very clear that uh, Hizbul Mujahideen, um, it's a very, very early days or a little unclear, but very early on, they became the armed wing of Jamaat-e Islami. So when you are hearing about what Hizbul Mujahideen is up to, um, you should see it a- at minimum as being an extension of Jamaat-e Islami. And obviously their acts of violence are um, from you know the late 80s all the way through now are extremely well known. So I want to just uh, quickly transition a little bit to the U.S. context. Um, and Cliff, you know, as a veteran uh, on the Hill, on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., um, obviously every organization, every country has lobbyists. Um, but, you know, a few years ago at the Hindu American Foundation, we had a resolution on Bangladesh condemning some of the human rights violations there and particularly named Jamaat Islami in that. And we were really um, shocked um, at that time to see the counter campaign that was being run by Jamaat Islami and its lobbying arms um, in D.C. So maybe if you can kind of talk a little bit about uh, their influence on Capitol Hill in particular and lobbying, uh, both in terms of Jamaat Islami more directly and maybe some of their affiliates as well. That is a very big topic because that you have to sort of delineate different things. There's multiple arms to this. There's multiple um, parts to it. And number one, in certain situations, you have jamaat islami foreign arms themselves directly lobbying. Um, there are FARA filings. That's the Foreign Agent Registration Act that requires you to file if you're funded by a foreign entity. Um, the details get a little bit messy, but the bottom line is this. Bangladesh Jamaat has openly been hiring um, lobbying firms in the U.S. It's, you know, and with the explicit intent, and you can read this on the FARA filings, that the intent is to make sure there is no change in U.S. policy and the Jamaat Islami is not seen as a threat um, in the United States. That's kind of admitting you're a national security threat, saying we don't want to be seen as a national security threat, uh, in my view. Um, so that's one arm of it. The other arm is it is, as um, we have mentioned a lot in our writings and is a big focus, is that they have very explicit, very clear, not reasonably debatable, they are obviously franchises in the U.S. The the main one of those is the Islamic Cirque of North America. If you don't believe me, um, believe Vali Nasser. He is a well-respected academic, not even a a left-wing academic, I should even mention, at Johns Hopkins. He wrote the only book um, in the West that really chronicles the history of Jamaat Islami um, that I'm aware of. And in it, he explicitly calls ICNA, or the Islamic Circle North America ICNA, um, one of the eight most important branches of Jamaat Islami in the world. It is essentially the main wing of Jamaat Islami in the US. Um, they have been around for several decades. Um, Madudi actually attended their first inaugural public event a year or two before he died. Um, and they are prominent and they are active. Um, so then, then you have a third level of this lobbying campaign, and that is simply that, as Sam mentioned, um, while um, Jamaat-e Islami and other Islamist groups, particularly the Muslim Brotherhood, but not all, only Muslim Brotherhood, um, do have some differences, they also share a lot in common and also work together. So when you are talking about, um, for example, um, pushback against people rec- doing things like recognizing the genocide in Bangladesh, or calling out the problems of Jamaat-e-Islami, 
you can both look at their um, direct lobbying, their franchise group lobbying, and frankly, the lobbying of a whole lot of other Islamist groups, um, um, CARE, for example, um, Islamic Society of North America, which is a different group, so on and so forth. They work in concert pretty clearly, pretty openly. I mean, it's not like something that's hidden. And there's a few others. Sam could probably mention a half dozen. He knows everyone in the country. But the bottom line is they are trying to exert their influence in a variety of ways, both through direct lobbying in Congress, through um, you know meeting days for their members in the Hill, through media, through um, you know things like this, frankly, Facebook podcast, through even um, billboards and things like that. I mean, they are doing everything they can to influence public opinion in their direction in the U.S., and they're not very shy about it. Um, and that has um, convinced some people to go along with their ways of looking at things. One other thing to notice, that to realize, is one of the things they've done is to obscure exactly the distinction that Sam and I have been discussing, or Sam discussed in detail, and that is the difference between, um, you know, just a... Uh, a moderate Muslim, a non-theocratic Muslim, call it whatever you want. Um, most Muslims in the U.S. in particular are not theocrats. But they want to blur that distinction. Their main goal, more than anything, is to be seen as the legitimate leaders of Muslims in America. That is their main goal. And to the degree that they get buy-in, it's not usually um, because members of Congress or whoever else, you know, members of media, buy into any sort of theocratic agenda it's because they think, um, you know, understandably even, that they don't want to be, you know, biased against Muslims in the broadest sense. They don't want to hate on Muslims in the broadest sense. They want to be inclusive and tolerant and all that. And that's all fine. Um, the question, and that's, that's even right. But the truth of the matter is these people don't represent all Muslims. They do not share the same views as most Muslims, and they are not in any meaningful sense the leaders of most Muslims. And that is what they, they gain their power by purporting to do that. And that is a significant part of why they're so successful. What is important for moderate Muslims and their allies, be they Hindus, Christians, Jews, whatever, is to point out who these people are, who they represent, what their real views are, and what that means for policymakers and decision makers and media people and so on and so forth. I think there's one one fact worth pointing out just to f- f- you know expand on what Cliff was, was saying. You know, it's very easy to show that these groups like the Islamic Circle of North America have no mandate. Uh, they, they seek to, to claim a mandate. They work very hard for legitimacy. Um, it's why they spend so much time lobbying and running conferences and asking for government funding, everything they can do to legitimize them as the face of American Islam. But the, the numbers tell a very different story. Um, approximately, this is a, an estimate, of course, because uh, um, uh, America does not take accurate census, any census of its, the religious makeup of its population, but um, it's believed that around 25% of American Muslims are South Asian, of South Asian heritage. Uh, and yet the most extensive poll ever done on community, re- community representation found that only two, and this is about eight years ago, only 2% of American Muslims thought that ICNA best represented their interests. There's a clear, there's a clear lack of mandate uh, here, and yet you have, you just have to look at the media or listen to what politicians would say, and it seems like ICNA is the Muslim community group that, that represents the interests of all Muslims everywhere for all time. Um, they know this deception is working, and that's why, <laughs> that's why they're doing it. Uh, and then, therefore, it's vital for not just uh, uh, Muslims but also non-Muslims like us and, and the Hindu American Foundation to 
to expose this lack of mandate and to work with moderate Muslims to, to show that these Islamists represent themselves and not American Islam. And I think Ikna um, personifies, I think, the problem in terms of maybe broader American society or policymakers and other influence makers not understanding the threat where they had a uh, wanted war criminal, Ashraf Thuman Khan, uh, along with she was tried and convicted in absentia as one of their, I think, founders and leaders for a number of years. Um, he was the vice president of the organization. Exactly. And so I think that just underscores the, the lack of knowledge and understanding of how these groups operate um, and what they represent. Um, yeah, go ahead. Sam. I was just gonna, I mean, it's not just an American phenomenon, of course. And there, there, there were two leaders of the Al-Badr killing squad. One was Ashraf Azam and Khan, whom you just mentioned. The other was a man called Chaudhry Munadeen. And while Khan came to the U.S. and joined ICNA, um, Chaudhry Munadeen went to, to Britain, to the United Kingdom, and set up Muslim Aid, a huge, today, a huge Islamist charity that gets tens of millions of, of dollars from, from Western governments and funding. But also a number of, he also set up a number of community groups as well. He's very famously uh, pictured with Prince Charles, uh, who was touring the Islamic Foundation, the group I mentioned earlier that had the two dining rooms named after the Islamist ideologues. So all across the Western world, Islamists, after murdering in the East, have come to the West to take control of Muslim communities. And you actually alluded to something really um, significant there when you talked about um, a charity that had been set up in the UK. And I was hoping if you can talk a little bit about how these Islamist groups actually use charitable organizations um, as fronts or to kind of pr provide a nice clean sheet to um, what the real agenda and uh, uh, objective Charity is fundamental to the Islamist cause. In fact, I, I, should, I should be broader than that. Charity is fundamental to Islam. One of the pillars of, of, of Islam is zakat, is this, this idea of, of, of donating a portions of, of one's wealth, of one's income, to assist those in need. Uh, and this is a very key part of Islam, as with many religions. Um, Islamism takes that one step further. It sees that zakat is fundamental to the religious ideology and realizes it can use it to advance a political ideology as well. So you just have to look in the, from the founding of the Brotherhood in the 1920s immediately. What did they do? They didn't take over mosques. No, they set up charities. They set up welfare groups, orphanages. Uh, Hamas did the same in the Gaza Strip. Hamas came to the fore because it offered... Uh, low-cost prescriptions to Gazans and Palestinians who couldn't afford it, while the, the corrupt Palestinian authority tried to charge them uh, uh, extortionate amounts. Even Al-Qaeda in Mali a few years ago was distributing food and medicine to the people of a village that had just, just conquered and, and, and despite slaughtering half the inhabitants just the week before. So this idea of charity is absolutely fundamental to Islamism, um, and it's part of what's uh, often called dawah, which loosely translated as proselytization, but it's more than that. It's not just about uh, proselytizing non-Muslims. It's about Islamizing existing Muslims, at least Islamizing them to the type of Islam the Islamists preach. And charity is by far the best way to do that. So within the West, one of the best ways that Islamists have found to gain the, the, the legitimacy we were talking about earlier is through charities. So the Muslim Brotherhood set up Islamic Relief, now the largest Muslim charity, one of the largest Muslim charities in the world and certainly the largest in the West. That gets 
tens and hundreds of millions of dollars over the last decade from Western governments. That has helped portray the Muslim Brotherhood in the West as this powerful organization with, with uh, financial and, 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 and social influence over not just Muslim communities, but non-Muslim communities as well. And it's the same with Jamaat Islami. They set up groups like Muslim Aid, I mentioned, in Britain, that has branches all around the world, in, from Australia to uh, the Arab world to the UK, and they even have an office here in the US. And then here in the US, you have groups like the Islamic Circle of North America. They set up groups like Islamic, uh, sorry, ICNO Relief, their domestic aid arm or their foreign aid arm, helping hand for relief and development. Charity is fundamental to the Islamist cause. And while most of it is genuine, and let me be clear about something. These Islamist charities in the West, they do do charitable work. They are feeding the hungry. They are housing the homeless. They do this because it helps them, as I said, it helps legitimize them. It helps distract from their, their more iniquitous activities. Uh, and it gets them government funding uh, and, and public recognition and, and support from ordinary Muslims. That said, these charities are not always free of terrorist connections and influence. And certainly, I mentioned Islamic Relief. We've caught them working with Hamas in Gaza. Uh, in fact, they're uh, banned in the United Arab Emirates as a terrorist group. Um, uh, helping Hand for Relief and Development, where we caught them in Pakistan, working with Lashkar Taiba. They're banned in Bangladesh from working with Rohingya uh, uh, Muslims. So these charities, while they're fundamentally about lawful activities, a lawful way to legitimize Islamist movements, they do, they do still subsidize violent Islamism as well. Um, and one of the, the, the great travesties in the Western world is that governments are often made aware of the fact that these charities are funding terrorism, are working with violent extremists, and yet they choose to give them money from the taxpayer's pocket anyway. Uh, and that's something we're working very hard to stop, but it's a, a real uphill battle. Yeah, and it really is. And I, <clears throat> I should explain how this has manifested itself in reality. Um, you mentioned um, previous resolutions. There's been two, uh, I believe, that have called out uh, Bangladesh, Jamaati Islami, and their violence against Hindus and so on and so forth. Um, those were great resolutions. They're the first two resolutions that I'm aware of that ever really addressed the problem of Jamaati Islami in the West. And um, as I, I've been, I tell people all the time, for all kinds of different historical, religious, political, economic reasons, um, America, you know, knows a little bit about the Middle East. They at least think about it. You know, it's something they're vaguely aware of. They, they and you know, especially since 9-11, most Americans know about the Muslim Brotherhood or Al-Qaeda, what have you. A lot less know about South Asian radicalism, even though in many cases it's more dangerous, which is what allows them to get away with a lot of this. But in specific, when we're talking about this, uh, as I mentioned, there, um, so there, we had these two resolutions. Well, those are only two resolutions up until this last cycle that really mentioned Jamaat Islami in a um, governmental setting, um, certainly congressional setting, I'm aware of it all. Um, that, uh, that said, the next thing I was going to get to is that now this um, this Congress, there is a bill called HRES 160, introduced by Congressman Jim Banks. It currently has uh, seven sponsors. This resolution is the first resolution that goes a little beyond what um, the previous ones did and actually mentions their actions in Kashmir, discusses their um, charities um, here and what their charities are up to. As Sam mentioned, we have it in writing, clear as day, both in the media and in their own legal documents, actually, that they sponsored a conference with Lashkari Taiba in Pakistan, an American group, that, an American-based charity that raises U.S. money working with Lashkari Taiba in Pakistan. They openly brag 
about having um, hundreds of projects with the Al-Kidmat Foundation. Al-Kidmat is explicitly Jamaati Islami's charitable arm. And all kinds of journalists and scholars in India and in the region say that they work essentially as the aid arm of Hezbollah Mujahideen. They give aid to those Hezbollah wants them to and take care of those kinds of people, not the people that necessarily really need it the way we would think of it. Um, they openly do that. And they are called out in this resolution for the first time for some of these acts that, I, that I'm mentioning. Um, that not, but the, this charitable face, the idea that, oh, look, we are a charity. We feel hungry children. We do good things um, is what allow is allows them to push back in ways they, they um, otherwise wouldn't. And we mentioned lobbying. One thing we learned um, just a few months ago that um, is both fascinating and from my point of view, a little bit horrifying is there is a group um, called Interaction. This is a very large umbrella organization with uh, about 200 charities under it um, of all different faiths and, and no faith at all. Um, but they're Muslim, Christian, Jewish, I believe Hindu, um, Buddhist, all kinds of different charities underneath this umbrella. That's all well and good. What got interesting is there is a sub umbrella called the Together Project of five charities, all of which have serious concerns regarding terror finance, radicalism, and so on and so forth. Helping Hands Relief and Development, ICNA's charity in the U.S., is one of those. We found out just a few months back that they are openly lobbying Congress against um, HRS 160, against a letter that was sent by Congressman Banks and a couple others asking for an investigation into potential terror finance, given on some of the things I've mentioned. Openly, basically saying, oh, their critics are all quacks and Islamophobes. This is all nothing, nothing to see here, move on. How dare you talk to these, you know, radical Islamophobes that think we're a problem. You know, these kinds of, and they are using this, you know, respectable face of a large umbrella organization to fight um, what they call misinformation. Um, not shockingly, they haven't actually addressed a single point made or actually meaningfully refuted anything, but that's what they call misinformation. And they bring some heavy guns to the fight, frankly. It, it, on top of interaction, we, we learned that HHRD had hired Perkins Coie. Um, Perkins Coie is a very large international law firm that you may have heard of um, because they were the law firm most responsible for the so-called Steele dossier. If you paid attention to all the Trump hullabaloo uh, for the past couple of years, you'll know about that. They were the ones most directly responsible for it. They actually drafted a memo on behalf of HHRD and ICNA um, basically trying to um, refute the um, concerns about terror finance that um, myself, Sam, and others have brought up. Um, now, if you actually read the memo carefully, um, and it's, you realize that not only does it not refute it, it doesn't even really try. It, all it really does is play a bunch of word games and try to you know, say, hey, look over there, um, because it doesn't actually refute anything. Indeed, it actually admits to sponsoring a conference. Um, with Lashkar Taiba in Pakistan, um, again a U.S. designated terrorist group that killed over 160 people, including some American citizens, in the Mumbai attacks in the late 2000s. Um, so I mean, this is a really toxic group. They are openly working with them. They admit to it, but they are doing everything possible um, to push back against any investigation, any accountability, or basically any questions being raised about all of this at all. Again, just trying to say, look, we are this nice charity. Look, we feed hungry children. Ignore everything else. 
That is their goal. That is what they're trying to do. And they're fighting very hard to make sure that nobody else knows anything else or hears any other side of the story. So, I mean, what is the response that you get from policymakers and others when you present them with evidence? And it's not like you are, you know, manufacturing evidence. You're actually going back to the primary source of these organizations themselves, which are talking about these things, right? So, yeah, almost pretty much everything we get, I I believe everything we get is from the public record. I mean, it's looking at their own websites. It's looking at their own statements. It's looking at media reports, you know, in Pakistan. It's looking at things that are not necessarily that hard to find. Somebody just has to look. Um, and I would say um, um, one of the biggest um, responses we get is, I mean, sometimes skepticism or outright opposition, but usually it's frankly um, no knowledge at all. Um, that's the thing that really concerns us more than anything. Um, one of the reasons we got into this whole issue was because, as I mentioned earlier, everybody knows who Al-Qaeda and the Muslim Brotherhood and ISIS and you know, some of these Middle East terrorist um, organizations and radical extremist organizations are. Um, people are aware, um, at least in the broadest sense, of what's going on. Um, they might not have a firm opinion, or if they do, I might disagree with their opinion, but they've heard of it. They're not totally clueless that it exists, that it's an issue. Frankly, you get any further you know, east than Afghanistan, and nobody knows what's going on anymore. You know, they, they know vaguely that Osama bin Laden was hiding in Pakistan, but that's about it. Nobody knows about um, Jamaat-e Islami or Hezbollah Mujahideen. They don't know about Lashkar Taiba, they don't know about JC Muhammad, they don't know about any of these different things. And so when I start talking to them, sometimes they're just, wow, this is fascinating, um, but they don't really know what to think. Um, and the, then, so that is one of the things we're trying to do is simply to raise the temperature on these groups because so many people really don't have any idea um, that this even exists or this is a thing or this is something that they should care. I think one, one other thing to note is that the, the American media has been pretty reprehensible. Mainstream media has been pretty reprehensible on this subject. When presented with this evidence, they have refused, steadfastly refused to report it, despite taxpayers' money being involved, despite the fact that registered American uh, uh, nonprofits are openly working with terrorists or funding terrorists. They have, they, have, they have not done as honest journalists should do. And a really good, just another very quick example of that, I, I have used this example quite a few times, uh, uh, but I think it's so compelling and it's such, such a good example that it's worth repeating. Um, I'm, I'm speaking to you today from Boston, and just a, a few miles from me is a group called uh, the Islamic Center of New England. Now, the Islamic Center of New England has long had a, an Islamist leadership, including Jamaat Islami, but also including Salafis. In fact, the father of a very prominent ISIS official was the head of the mosque for a while. But uh, the imam of the mosque, uh, ten, just over 10 years ago, was a man called um, uh, 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 Muhammad Masood. And Muhammad Masood, it turned out, and this was only known thanks to um, some investigative work done by Indian journalists, Muhammad Masood was the brother of um, Hafiz Muhammad Saeed, the head of Lashkar-e-Taiba. Now, when this was noted, a couple of people went, not American journalists, they didn't want to do anything with this at all, but a couple of people went to this, this imam and said, hey, you're the brother of one of the most notorious terrorists in the world. Uh, <laughs> what's going on? And, and uh, Mohammed Masood said, oh, you know, I don't speak to my brother. I share nothing in common with him. I have no links at all. In 2008, uh, he was deported. It turned out he'd lied on his visa application and falsified some information. He was deported back to Pakistan. What did he do? The moment he got back to Pakistan, he became the official spokesperson for his brother's terrorist group. 
uh, a spin-off called J- J- uh, uh, Jamata Dawa. The, this is, and by the way, his brother-in-law um, was a man called, uh, oh, I'm forgetting the name, uh, and, uh, somebody Rekhi, Abdul Rahman Rekhi, I think, who was the head of, of, of the group that Helping Hand worked with in, in Pakistan, the front group for Lashkar Taiba. So there's this little network of terrorism, of terrorists active in America, working with American nonprofits, and not a single journalist would even look at it, despite being presented many times with this information. And again, and, and the funny thing is, is you can see this both in public, you can see it in articles, you can see it on the news, you can see it on Twitter. Um, bring up any of this stuff, and they almost never actually discuss the actual facts. They accuse you of being an Islamophobe. They accuse you of being a racist. They say you're a you know fascist, you know Nazi, something like that, and they change the topic. Um, I mean, in the, <laughs> that's it's really pretty clear. Their, their, their tactic is to obscure. They, a lot of things hide behind words like, you know, you're an Islamophobe, you're, you're a fascist, you know, and the media is afraid of looking at it, I think. They're afraid of, you know, losing um, the respect of their colleagues because they're seen as being racist or Islamophobic or something like that. And uh, the irony is, of course, is something you pointed out earlier, is that uh, the people that are uh, most affected by it in the world by this sort of capitulation to theocratic Islamism are Muslims themselves. Absolutely. And, you know, I just wanted to actually kind of pivot a little bit um, because I think what you're talking about applies to what we've been seeing now for the last several months after India abrogated Article 370 and further integrated uh, the state of Jammu and Kashmir into the Indian Union um, in terms of some of the activities of these groups here in the U.S. and also the responses from policymakers and the media and the uh, really, you know, not just ignoring facts, but like you said, kind of um, buying into this, um, you know, propaganda campaign. Um, and, you know, th- that's kind of been used to anybody that brings up anything that is seen as supporting the abrogation or that points out the activities of some of these violent groups and their support from Islamist groups here in the U.S., is automatically labeled or smeared with, you know, terms of fascist, you know, from, from our perspective, it's Hindu fascist. Um, and then, um, or, you know, or Islamophobe or, you know, you name it, racist, et cetera. Um, so can you talk a little bit about how, you know, in the Kashmir context and what's happened um, in the last several months um, in India, and then how that's uh, taken place here in the U.S. and the effectiveness of groups in being able to obfuscate, um, as you mentioned, and really being able to kind of ratchet up this propaganda campaign. How, you know, talk a little bit about that and what, what, what's gone on behind the scenes in terms of how they put together that, uh, you know, those tough points of propaganda here in the U.S. I think one thing to know about this that's very interesting is this goes back to something else I said that most Americans know very little about South Asia. I mean, it is, so the reason I'm bringing that up is that when Islamic Circle of North America or other Islamist groups paint a picture of what is happening in Kashmir, that's the picture people know. Um, and only people that have already looked into this or look into it more deeply know anything else. And so, um, I mean, this I'm sure is no, um, no, um, nothing new to you, but everybody saw that paid attention to this, um, what was it, seven months ago or so, eight months ago, 
Um, Indian reporter in Kashmiri pandit um, R.T. Tiku Singh went to testify before Congress. Um, she was, you know, as a young girl, driven out of the valley um, by radical Islamists, by terrorists. Um, you know, the and she was trying to highlight, look, um, you know, let's talk about Hezbollah Mujahideen. Let's talk about Lashkari Tabe. Let's talk about their role in all this. And you basically had Ilhan Omar go and smear her as a tool for the government and a refusal to talk about any of the actual issues she brought up. And there's a reason for that. The reason was because you don't want to get too much in the weeds on this because you're going to lose real quick if you actually start looking into this in any sort of detail. She needed to basically needed to skip the argument, go straight to um, being concerned about you know, the Indian government. And since so few people understand the issue in America, that's very much easier for them to do or drawing on a blank slate. Um, my stand, I think this is pretty, uh, it's really kind of depressing and sad because here's the thing. And if you hear their narrative, oh, look, there's all these innocent Kashmiri Hindus or the Kashmiri Muslims, I mean, true, most Kashmiri Muslims are not violent. You know, all of a sudden they have these extra security measures and they have their, you know, communications cut off. Oh, that's horrible. You know, that, that sounds bad. You know, I mean, if you're going to look at nothing but that, it's not an irrational thing to sit here and think, oh, that's not good. Why are we doing that? Until you realize what is really going on, that you have violent terrorist groups, murderous terrorist groups that have, you know, committed ethnic cleansing, that have committed murder countless times, not only against Hindus, although predominantly, but against Muslims that wouldn't go along with their designs, um, that are helping to drive this. I mean, India's security measures can be criticized and can, you know, different people, reasonable people can have different points of view on what was necessary and what was appropriate given the situation. What we should be able to agree upon is that Hezbollah Mujahideen, Lashkar Teva, the you know Jamaat Islami, these kinds of groups, have, you know, are part of the problem. They're not; they're the drivers of the problem. In other words, these security measures, what they have done, whatever criticisms you have of them, they didn't just pop out of the ground. They weren't; they're not doing them for fun. They're doing them because there has been terrorism, um, you know, often funded abroad, but it, that impacts the lives and murders and destroys. Um, the fabric of existence in Kashmir, if not pushed back against. And uh, that is the fundamental truth you have to grapple with. And far too many few people don't get that. Now, Islamic Circle of North America has been very outspoken, very publicly, about trying to obscure any other narrative. Um, they have openly, I mean, um, they have a billboard, um, we have a picture of it, that is sponsored by Islamic Circle of North America and also with a group called Stand with Kashmir. Stand with Kashmir literally popped up out of the blue um, earlier last year. Nobody knows where it's incorporated. Nobody knows who its officers are. Nobody knows how it gets its funding. Nobody knows exactly what it's up to. We know a panel of experts that we have. They have lists on their website, um, and we know that uh, you know what they say in their tweets and what they have said in different um, articles and such. They openly were putting up billboards saying "Free Kashmir," you know. Indian government bad, da 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 da. They're openly doing things like this. They're running Twitter accounts. They're holding teach-ins all across the um, universities, things like that. Um, this is partnership between these two groups. And what we do know about these groups, Stand with Kashmir, is that they openly celebrate um, overt terrorists, people that were were arrested and sometimes killed for 
committing acts of murder and violence. And they are celebrated without even the passing mention that they were senior leaders in U.S. designated terror groups. Uh, things like this. Um, everything is about the narrative, not about the facts. Yes, of course. And I, I do encourage listeners to uh, go find Martha Lee's article. It's on our organization's website, which is meforum.org. What Martha found was very interesting. Um, as Cliff mentioned, they have these academics fronting uh, uh, Stan with Kashmir's efforts. And these academics speak the language of sociologists. They speak the language of left-leaning uh, social science academics. So they're talking about imperialism. They're talking about uh, uh, the indigenous people, and they're talking about even feminism and climate change, somehow tying that into Kashmir. Um, and then you do all this to attack India uh, and to exonerate uh, the Kashmiri resistance, as they call them. Um, when you actually look, as Cliff said, at what Stam of Kashmir is, is doing, you look at the kind of people it's supporting and you see that it actually it's there to portray actual terrorists as martyrs. You start to realize that the academics are simply there to do exactly the same thing, just put a sort of semi-quasi-intellectual spin on the defense of terrorists. And that's exactly what they do. And Martha even caught uh, one of the academics also um, uh, uh, apologizing for, for, for one such terrorist. So yeah, I very much recommend your listeners look at this article. But the use of academics actually is, is, is indicative of something a little broader. And, what I, and I think much of the Indian community in the, in, in the US has not realized this, but what American Islamism has done, and not just Jamaati Islami, but, but the rest of it as well, um, including sort of Muslim Brotherhood groups, they have mobilized the infrastructure used for demonizing Israel and supporting groups like Hamas. They have mobilized them using the same tactics, the same approach uh, to go after India instead. And just as they um, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, defend groups like Hamas. Now they're defending groups like Hezbollah Mahajideen. Just as they uh, lie and defame uh, uh, the actions of the Israeli state, now they, they lie and defame the actions of, of of the Indian state as well. You just have to look to the University of California, uh, uh, Berkeley College there, where one of the key individuals there, Hassan Bazian, is a, a key figure in the in the, what's called American Muslims for Palestine um, uh, and other groups obsessed, you know, the link to Hamas, the uh, obsessed with Israel, he is now writing about Islamophobia in India by the RSS, by the BJP. That is his, now his main focus. He was switched over. His focus was switched to concentrate on India instead. The other the other thing I think to point out is the influence now of Pakistan within American Islamism. Um, and you had um, uh, Ghulam Nabi Fai, who's a former a convicted ISI agent, uh, 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 very active in the American Islamist scene. You now have him being paraded around by um, American Islamist groups to speak at various events and webinars, meet with legislators and so on. Uh, but more than that, you even have Imran Khan addressing Islamist conferences last year. You know, the, we're now seeing the, 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 the focus of American Islamism has switched to South Asia. It's no longer just about the Middle East. And you can see Pakistan's hand in it. You can see the efforts of domestic Islamist groups 
to uh, make Kashmir the new Gaza, to make it the new South Africa, to make it the new cause of left, both left-wing and Islamists everywhere. And the academics and groups like Stand with Kashmir play a crucial role in that because they bring the, the power of academic legitimacy to the fight. They bring forth the idea that there are intellectual reasons for opposing India. There are, there are justified social and political reasons that can be explained with academic thought and social justice language. Uh, this is very dangerous, and uh, this could be the start of a decades-long attempt to demonize India, to uh, promote anti-Hindu and anti-Indian rhetoric. Uh, and I think we're going to increasingly see that in the universities. I'm sure we'll see student groups pop up uh, dedicated to this issue. Uh, and I think you'll see it more in uh, the Muslim, American Muslim community and in our politics and media as well. Um, India is the new Israel. And I think the most recent example of that is um, the celebration of Riaz Naiku, who was a Hezbollah uh, commander that was uh, just recently killed by Indian security forces. Um, and I know your colleague at the Middle East Forum, Martha Lee, wrote a fascinating article kind of delving deeply into some of the Stand with Kashmir connections and their panels of experts, quote unquote. Uh, maybe, Sam, can you talk a little bit uh, more about their use of academics, um, and their use of other respected experts to kind of further push their narratives out there. I would add even more to that, a little bit to that. Um, basically, agree with everything Sam said. The, the one thing that's worth looking at that is, again, this is kind of an amorphous big concept, so don't take it too far. There's a lot of details involved, but in the largest sense, in the in the biggest sense, most of the Arab countries. Um, their governments anyway, and I would say even some of their societies are going in a more moderate direction than they have in previous decades. Um, and, and that is a good trend. I mean, they have all kinds of problems. Now we're close to where I would like them to be. But in general, I mean, Saudi Arabia and the other Arab countries have turned on the Muslim Brotherhood, for example. I mean, they, for the most part, hate them. And um, so... When you see all these other Islamist groups all of a sudden are changing their focus on the Middle East, it's because they're losing ground in their own backyards. And so the focus becomes South Asia, and the South Asian, Asian Muslim groups, um, Islamist groups, um, become much more um, of, of, an, of a focus, and much more important. And the issue itself, that is, of India, of Kashmir, whatever else they get their hands on, becomes a focus because it's not only important as an issue itself, it's a um, something to polarize, something to use to unite Islamists together and to claim legitimacy over the leadership of Muslims. And, um, and, and there are other countries that are going in that direction, I would argue, and this is, again, um, a simple version of it, but Turkey, Qatar, Iran, and Pakistan are all going in a more Islamist direction. And much of the rest of the Islamic world, other than that, are slowly, imperfectly inching in the other direction. So, you know, you're, you're, but you're going to expect a lot more focus on those kinds of issues and a lot more partnerships between those kinds of um, Islamist groups. Sam can talk a lot more. One thing that's very concerning is that you see a lot of increasing, increasingly Turkish um, groups working on a lot of these Islamist causes in ways that you hadn't in, in previous years, for example. In fact, yes. And in fact, Turkey has even coordinated working with groups like Helping Hand for Relief and Development and other terror-tied charities in Pakistan. Turkey is, is setting up umbrella groups for them and arranging conferences. Uh, yeah, uh, Indians, the, both the Indian government and the Indian diaspora should be very concerned about the, the Erdogan regime's network 
uh, it's, it has also, like American Islamists, it has its sights firmly set on India. Yeah, that's interesting you bring that up because I think um, Turkey and Erdogan in particular was very vocal at the time of India's actions with at the abrogation of 370 last year in criticizing India and supporting Pakistan um, really unequivocally. Um, and I think it's Ikna, perhaps, if I'm not mistaken, that actually now here has been, you know, denying the Armenian genocide or towing one of these groups, towing the Turkish line in terms of what happened in the Armenian genocide, which is very disturbing, to say the least. Yes, absolutely. And in fact, it's fascinating the degree to which Islamists will suddenly mobilize around an issue that they've never thought about before. And, and the Armenian genocide is a perfect example of that. Over the last few years, as the Turkish regime became more involved with American Islamism, suddenly groups like the Council on American Islamic Relations and, other, and ICNA, as you mentioned, suddenly now start talking uh, about the wonders of Turkey and the wickedness of attempts to obsess over things like the Armeni Armenian genocide. So uh, and it's, you know, it's the same thing we saw, we're seeing now with Kashmir. Uh, American Islamists can be mobilized for, you know, for whatever the cause of the day is. Um, we shouldn't underestimate their, their power. These groups are very good at what they do. They're very good at taking an issue and uh, making politicians and the media take their side. Uh, we need to mobilize now against these Islamists to 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 halt this effort in its in its in its tracks. Absolutely, and I actually, um, you know, I'd be remiss um, if I didn't actually ask a little bit about CARE and their role in all of this. The Council of uh, Council on American Islamic Relations, uh, which has been one of the most prominent organizations in the U.S., uh, reportedly a Muslim Brotherhood um, inspired organization, or some of alleged greater connections with the Brotherhood and other. Um, Hamas-related, uh, affiliated organizations. Uh, and they have, I think, are symbolic of that shift that you mentioned from the Middle East to South Asia. They've been very active on the Kashmir issue, but they've also now become active uh, in promoting uh, resolutions at the local city council levels uh, across the U.S. on uh, against India's Citizenship Amendment Act which was intended to provide a refuge and uh, expedited citizenship for those minorities that had escaped uh, persecution in India's neighboring countries, Islamic republics of Afghanistan, um, uh, Pakistan, and, and Bangladesh. And CARE has been at the forefront um, of leading some of these anti-India resolutions in different cities. Maybe you could touch on a little bit of the connection between CARE and some of these other groups, such as Ikna, Jamaat, um, and other Yeah. Of course. So the Council on American Islamic Relations grew out of um, Muslim Brotherhood and Hamas networks of the, of the 80s and 90s in, in, um, in America. Uh, it came to the fore, really, in the public's mind, and quite a, quite a, a large number, amount, a number of the public have heard of CARE uh, for a couple of reasons. Firstly, they are very good at being very loud on popular issues. They're very good at getting involved with whatever pop, you know, popular left-wing cause is, is, is trending. Um, uh, you know, they, they're at the forefront of the fight against Trump and his policies, the legal challenges, they're at the head of the, the, the uh, protests that marching through New, New York and D.C. But actually, CARE was, was even better known 10 years ago or 12 years ago. In 2007, 2008, uh, CARE was named an unindicted co-conspirator by federal prosecutors 
in, in, uh, in a, an enormous terror financing trial against a charity called the Holy Land Foundation, which had been moving huge amounts of money to, to Hamas. A CARE and a whole bunch of other groups, uh, mostly Muslim Brotherhood-linked Islamist, domestic Islamist groups, were named as unindicted co-conspirators. ICNA was also named in some of the documents, but it, it wasn't named as an unindicted co-conspirator, but it was peripherally uh, uh, you know, mentioned. Um, as a result of that, the FBI blacklisted CARE. Uh, uh, some years later, in 2014, the United Arab Emirates banned it as a terrorist organization. Nonetheless, it remains a very popular uh, Islamist group that has a great deal of support from the media and legislators in this country. CARE uh, these days is very different to the CARE uh, of 10, 20 years ago, whereas once it was a, an essentially an arm of the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood movement, it has diluted, not diluted in a good way. It hasn't moderated. It has diluted in terms of the, the diversity of Islamist thought that governs it. And it's now a little bit of everything. Um, and it's uh, almost like a sort of collaborative effort between a whole bunch of different Islamist groups, including Jamati Islami. So CARE is, yes, is happy to jump on pretty much to any any cause that's going, and Kashmir is a key one for it. Anything where care can lead, anything where care can be the voice of outrage, the voice of protest against injustice, or at least what they call injustice, uh, care will, will be there. Uh, uh, and so, yes, it has jumped on the Kashmir issue. As you say, it is working not just nationally on this issue, but locally as well in city councils and state legislatures uh, around the country. Care has long worked with. Um, ICNA, as has another Muslim Brotherhood group called the Muslim American Society. Um, uh, like CARE, a, a product of the Muslim Brotherhood Network in America. Every year, in fact, twice a year, the Muslim American Society holds a joint conference with the Islamic Circle of North America with ICNA. And these two conferences are the largest conferences in the Muslim calendar uh, in, in America. And they attract very prominent uh, hate preachers and clerics from around the world, including senior Jamati Islami leaders. In fact, uh, one of the, the top officials of Jamati Islami India, a man called Yuslaf Islahai, is an almost uh, annual speaker at these, these conferences. Um, they also attract senior politicians, including presidential candidates from time to time. So, you know, it, it's a good example of Jamati Islami and what was once known as the Muslim Brotherhood Network working together. Um, we shouldn't assume for a second that Jamati Islami is the only Islamist group behind the anti-India campaign, the pro-Kashmiri terror campaign. It, no, uh, uh, thanks to the efforts of ICNA and groups like CARE, it has now become a, a pretty Islamist-wide effort. And we're even seeing Salafi clerics, you know, clerics who used to say nothing about international affairs. We're even seeing them now talking about Kashmir. There is a very strong effort to make this uh, a worldwide Muslim uh, 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 protest issue. Uh, and the, the American Islamists are key, a key to that spread. And frankly, I, I, this is sad to the truth. I mean, India is losing the PR war on this right now. They're losing it pretty badly from my point of view. And that's that's sad because they have a good story to tell and there's issues that need to be looked at. I think the degree that um, our work has gotten such huge amounts of blowback, and it has gotten huge amounts of blowback, is because we're the only um, organization that I'm aware of that has sort of mounted a counteroffensive, not on Kashmir or, you know, the Citizenship Amendment or these other things that are, direct, you know, because we're not, our job is not to make India's case for it, but we are taking the fight to India's enemies, which are also the enemies, I would argue, of the United States, as certainly the enemies of anybody that believes in 
um, you know, freedom and um, secularism and, you know, um, uh, freedom of religion. Um, and so the, the fight we are getting, the pushback we are getting is because, um, you know, there's not nearly enough people that know about this and calling out exactly this very public, very open, very obvious campaign they're engaged in. And since, as I've said before, they're writing on a blank slate, far too many people are buying it. Hook, line, and sinker. No, absolutely. And I think you raise a good, uh, a great point there in terms of the PR battle. And I think uh, these groups are polished. Uh, this Islamist network are polished. They obviously have many fronts and many um, powerful lobbying groups representing them, but they themselves and how they carry out their campaigns are extremely polished and are able to really um, provide this, you know, glossy sheet of work and uh, to a large extent portray themselves um, as victims, um, um, as opposed to the ones that are really, you know, the ones supporting violence and intolerance. Um, you know, I, I wanted to just wrap up here with a couple of um, additional questions. One is that, so we've talked a lot about ICNA. Now, there's another group in the U.S., ISNA, which is Islamic Society of North America. Can you just draw the distinction between the two and talk a little bit about what ISNA um, does and represents? Are they another Islamist group? Are they separate? Um, uh, tell us a little bit about ISNA. Yeah, of course. The Islamic Society of North America was, uh, we've already spoken about CARE and the Muslim American Society. That's the Muslim Brotherhood founded side of American Islamism. ICNA is the Jamaati Islami side of American Islamism. ISNA, the Islamic Society of North America, and these names are very similar, so uh, difficult to keep track. ISNA is somewhere in the middle. It has a bit of both. Um, uh, uh, you know, in terms of its ethnic makeup, it's, it's quite varied. In terms of its ideological makeup, it's an array of, of different Islamist voices. ISNA, had, like CARE, like ICNA, has been keen to jump on the Kashmir issue. It was ISNA's conference where Imran Khan spoke. Um, and that's interesting to note because traditionally ISNA hasn't had an overt Pakistani connection. Uh, but again, they're willing very much, it seems, to get in bed with the Pakistani state and its efforts to interfere and demonize India here in the U.S. Uh, the Islamic uh, ISNA, the Islamic Society of North America, like CARE, was also an unindicted co-conspirator in the 2008 Holy Land Foundation uh, terror financing case. Um, uh, at least its officials were. Uh, it's part of the same dangerous Islamist network. It's probably sensible to see it essentially as the same network as CARE. Um, uh, and, you know, there's no doubt that all these groups are working against India. There's no doubt that all these groups are working to make Kashmir the cause of the day. Um, uh, American Indians uh, have to be, or rather Indian Americans, have to be worried about all these groups, not just ICLA, not just Jamaati Islami. There's a whole plethora of theocratic organizations going after uh, uh, India, going after Hindus. Uh, and by the way, that's one other thing I should mention. Uh, one of the things that w the Middle East Forum, that our organization started to do, is we're starting to look at the anti-Hindu rhetoric spouted by Islamist clerics in this country. And it's very strong. And to our you know, we haven't been cataloging this in the past, and I wish we had, uh, because actually it's a, it's a real guiding uh, hatred for so many Islamist groups, this demonization of, of, of Hindus and uh, Hindu history. Um, so, you know, this is the focus for the Middle East Forum, for my project Islamist Watch over the next uh, year or so. And, um, you know, I, I cannot stress how important it is that, that Indians, both in this country and in India, uh, do not underestimate the danger that these American proxies present. Not only will they fund terror that will, 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 will kill and maim in India, in Kashmir, but here in the US, they will lie and deceive 
uh, to turn our politicians, to turn our media against you as well. This is, this is a full-fledged war, uh, and we've got to start fighting back. Oh, absolutely. And I think you raised a great point there about um, the anti-Hindu rhetoric in particular. And I think there's a parallel there where, you know, people that have been in the past critical of Israel's policies, a lot of that narrative has delved into anti-Semitism. And you see something similar here with any criticism of India and invariably um, has that undertone of very um, much an anti-Hindu, a demonization of Hindus and anti-Hindu rhetoric involved in it as well. Absolutely, absolutely, and uh, you know, th- there's there's a long history of because because w- what the Islamists consider uh, polytheism is key is a very a, a key tenet of, of parts of Islam. The Islamists have really jumped on this angle. So you can, if you listen to Deobandi clerics or Salafi clerics across America. Uh, no doubt most of them would have had a khutbah, a, a lecture, a Friday night lecture against Hindus at some point uh, among these radical clerics. Hindus are a prime target. Um, uh, no one's been cataloging this. No one has properly. Uh, it's time we all start uh, doing so. Uh, you know, just a couple more questions here. Um, so in terms, of, I want to keep it here in the U.S. and then go back to India for a second. But in terms of these Islamist groups, you know, one thing that we haven't talked about is any student front groups. Um, Stand with Kashmir is kind of like a broader group. They obviously have activists and they do teach on campus. Talk a little bit about academics, but are there any specific college campus uh, student groups that you could identify that are part of these broader networks, these Islamist networks that are very active um, in, you know, really promoting the same agendas? Mm. This is a question we're working on right now, actually. Stand with Kashmir does have university chapters. A key focus for it is university. And again, this is part of the effort to replicate what worked for the Islamists when it came to Israel. Their cop- Islamists saw campuses the key the key focus for not just implementing boycott motions, but for turning the next generation of educated Americans against, against Israel. They're try- Islamists are trying to do exactly the same right now with, with Kashmir. So Stand with Kashmir is setting up uh, student branches across the country. But we're also seeing anti-Kashmir Kashmir uh, related rhetoric and anti-Indian rhetoric come out of the existing Islamist groups on campus. Even groups like Students for Justice in Palestine, uh, despite the name, have also switched uh, a little bit to looking at India and going after India. We're seeing webinars and events on before Corona events on campus on the subject of Kashmir with some of the, the Muslim student associations involved with that uh, yeah, this is not just this is not just on the hill on, on, on Capitol Hill that that Kashmir is an issue. It's not just in, in in city councils. It's around the country. It's in our campuses. It's in our newspapers. It is everywhere. And yes, universities are a, a key a key battleground. Islamic Circle of North America had a um, a Facebook webinar on Kashmir. What it was just a week or two ago. I can't remember the exact date. It was in it was in the last month. Um, and it was interesting. I actually tuned in to watch it just uh, to uh, hear what they had to say. And uh, I was interested. It was curious what their case was going to be. And I was amazed at how thin it was. I mean, it was essentially to repeat the word fascist a whole bunch of times and mention that some Indians went to mention went to meet Franco back in the 1930s. Um, I was shocked at just how shallow it was. Um, nonetheless, um, again, when you're speaking to an audience that doesn't know much, that might be enough. Um, and, uh, so that is what they're engaged in doing already. Um, and, um, yeah, I expect it to accelerate and continue. I, I would be surprised if more 
student groups didn't pop up, much like it has with Palestine and Israel, much like it has in a few other contexts. Um, you know, they'll they'll do it, and it will be um, an, a narrative that is entirely one-sided. It will be one that completely ignores um, the actions of terrorists in the region, um, and it will continue to um, do what it can to set the Islamist agenda, which is greater rule for Islamists. And that is both in both the U.S. and in India. And I just wanted to end on this question. Um, so there was another, I mean, you guys have been producing some really um, great in-depth articles, but there was another article um, that you recently, I think Sam co-wrote with uh, an Indian expert, Abhinav Bandia, uh, the Bliki Jamaat, which has been in the news quite a bit lately, um, uh, particularly because there are a lot of um, coronavirus cases were linked to a recent um, event that they held in India. Um, and uh, the Bligi, I think, has gone under the radar for quite a bit of time in terms of its um, ideology, in terms of its uh, uh, objectives and agenda. Maybe, Sam, if you could talk a little bit about uh, the Bligi and if they are, in fact, a benign organization or are there other aspects of the organization that shouldn't worry um, you know, U.S. policymakers, Indians, and um, everybody in between. Tabliki Jamaat is, I think, best described as the missionary arm of Deobandi Islam. Deobandi Islam being a South Asian Sufi sect from Deoband in India, um, formed in the 19th century, partly as a, a reaction to, to British colonial rule. Um, Deobandi Islam has long been associated with violence, mostly in contrast with its more moderate alternative, Barelwi Islam. Deobandis are uh, very keen on the dawah, this word I mentioned earlier, this proselytization side of things, which, as, as I said before, is not just about recruiting non-Muslims. No, it's primarily about Islamizing Muslims, existing Muslims, to make sure they're being as pious as the Islamists uh, declare that they, they must be. And so Tabligi Jamaat goes uh, around the world from mosque to mosque, radicalizing existing Muslim communities. And it's very interesting to listen to uh, interviews with Tabligi members or friends of Tabligi members. And they'll say that, you know, Tabligi came to town, came to the mosque. And this could be in India, this could be in London, this could be here in the US. Tabligi came to the mosque. Uh, my friend uh, went on for, for a weekend, went away with them. Um, and now his entire family, the women are covered. Uh, the men are, 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 are spousing really quite extreme rhetoric. They went in a few months from being perfectly moderate uh, American Muslims or British Muslims or Indian Muslims to believing in something hardline and extreme. This is what Tabliki Jamaat does. And the number of examples of it radicalizing Muslim communities is far too many to ever truly catalog or, or write down. It has been key to the expansion, Tabliki Jamaat, of Deobandi Islam in the West, um, the big seminaries in Britain for the Deobandi movement were partly founded by Tabligi Jamaat. Um, mosques, both in India and the West, that may belong to another Islamic sect, Tabligi Jamaat comes in, it takes them over, and then it pushes Deobandi Islam. Uh, Deobandi Islam supplants the existing leadership. In India, uh, we've seen a lot of examples of, and in fact, we wrote in the article you mentioned, we wrote about how dozens of mosques, Tabligi is uh, essentially an infiltrating arm that comes in takes the mosque and secures uh, extremist control and throws out the moderates. Um, it's a dangerous group. Um, and the West, uh, at least Western law enforcement and security services, have known that it is a dangerous group for, for decades. They noticed that 
dozens of prominent terrorists, including the 7-7 bombers in London, the uh, Richard Reed, the transatlantic bomber, and, and many others, they have passed through Tablighi Jamaat training programs through their study sessions. Um, Tablighi Jamaat is one of the few constants in the radicalization, radicalization history of you know, a significant number of, of terrorists, both here and in, in South Asia. Um, Western governments have known this for a while. They failed to do anything about it. Um, uh, the closest that uh, uh, we know that came to sort of response was actually by New York police, which came to when, when they were looking into the Islamist threat in, in the post 9-11 years, came to see Tablighi as a key catalyst for radicalization and terror. But apart from that brief moment of interest, there has not been enough focus on them. Even in India, where Tablighi uh, is tied to groups like Hezbollah, we go into detail into this in the article. And I do recommend that readers go read our article again on meforum.org. You can find it. But you know, groups like Hezbollah Mahajadeen will send their members off to take part in Tablighi Jamet training process. It is seen as the raw, religious, purest foundation for terrorism, for extremism. Uh, it, it, as I say, it's the means by which Islamists Islamize. Uh, and terror groups make use of it, as do lawful and nonviolent Islamists as well. We have woefully ignored the threat posed by Tablighi Jamaat for decades, uh, despite its const- the fact it's a constant in so many radicalization and terror cases. And let me just end with this, because uh, there's, there's a huge amount that can be said about this. And, and again, I do, do recommend you, your readers find the article. But let me just end with this. I was at a, a black Salafi mosque, a, a Salafi mosque run by, with African-Americans, run by African-Americans, attended by African-Americans about four or five months ago. And uh, I had been invited by the imam just to sit at the back as they, uh, as they uh, conducted prayers. And at the very end, a Tablighi Jamaat member stood up. You can always recognize them. They wear a big white turban. Um, uh, they're very noticeable. And he invited all the brothers there to come to a jamaat Islami mosque um, uh, slightly further to the west of Boston uh, a few weeks later. Um, uh, I then heard again he was at another mosque that had been the one I mentioned earlier that had, whose brother whose imam had been the brother of Lashkar Taiba. Tablighi Jamaat is involved with every single extremist mosque you can find, and they're one of the few groups that have managed to transcend the theological and political divisions that keep both Muslim and Islamist groups apart. Usually, um, the uh, Salafis do not like Deobandis; they disagree with them fundamentally on theology and, and jurisprudence and, 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 and politics. But Salafis will still allow Tablighi Jamaat, the Deobandi missionary arm, to come to their mosque because they see Tablighi Jamaat, they see them as this force that helps radicalize the community for the good of all Islamists, not just Deobandi Islam. So this is, this is one of the few Islamist movements, yes, that can transcend the divisions that have previously limited the influence uh, of Islamist sects, both clerical and, and political uh, ones. We should be much more concerned about them than we have been. I was delighted to see that the Indian uh, uh, government has just announced an inquiry into Tablighi Jamaat's sources of funding. And um, its funding sources have been a, a subject of great mystery for decades. And, I'm, and, and, and I, I, you know, in our article, we call for this very action. I said, we say investigate its funding sources. Now, finally, someone is doing it. And I'm, I'm very much hoping that the Indian government's investigation will be a first step in a long-term program, a collaboration between Indian governments and Western governments to clamp down on this dangerous group. You know, it seems like we have... Um an uphill battle, to say the least. Here, um, I mean, I and I think half the battle is just, as 
the work that you guys are doing is just educating people around these groups um, and you know the lack of knowledge and the knowledge gap that's there about some of these South Asian uh, groups and the extensive nature of their networks, funding, um, activities, etc. Um, and I would definitely encourage our listeners to continue to follow um, your work at meforum.org. And if you can maybe tell us or tell our listeners um, how to find you on social media so they can um, continue to engage in the conversation and also to subscribe to your newsletter. If you go to meforum.org, please do subscribe to our newsletters. We are publishing a lot of information on Islamism in America as it relates to India and Kashmir and their efforts uh, 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 to demonize Hindus and India uh, across the country. So sign up to our newsletters. You can find our social media links from there, but just on Facebook or Twitter, search Middle East Forum. will probably be the first result that comes up. Subscribe to us on there. We talk about this subject a lot. It's of enormous importance to us. And, you know, we're keen to collaborate with the American Indian community as much as possible on this issue. Well, that's it for this episode of That's So Hindu. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It's how you can help this show get discovered by more listeners. You can help ensure that more of these get made by making a donation to HAF at www.hinduamerican.org slash donate. Thanks again for listening.